And so this evening we're going to be starting a, a new series. And um, as leadership, we, we prayed and we thought, what could we, what could we meditate on for the next few weeks? And we took into account the situation where our communities, where our country was in, and we think back to, to two weeks, three weeks ago, where we, where we were all engrossed in what was happening in our communities, and we felt we still need to be thinking and praying and listening to what God is saying to us, and how God wants to speak to us about the evil in our communities, and what God would want to be saying to us, and how He could how we may be wanting to use us to speak into, into this thing called evil. So these are, these are difficult days in our country. I think we can all, we can all um, admit that. Those are the, the latest crime statistics that were released at the end of August of 2019. We see an increase, a 3% increase in murders, robberies with aggravated circumstances, an increase. Thankfully, bank robberies have decreased. Um, Cash-in-transit robberies have decreased. Yeah. But it's a reflection of what's going on in our country, in our nation. And it's something that we need to be speaking into. All over our country, I think people are asking what in the world are we to do? Some people feel that they can't handle it anymore, and so they feel, you know what, I think I've had enough of South Africa, and they immigrate. Security companies are doing really well at this time. Amidst all the fear and the crime in our country, down the road about 15 k's from where we are right now, Nyanga has, still has the highest murder rate in our country, which is followed by Delft, which is then followed by Kailicha, three communities within our city, the top in the country. And then this morning, computer mania at, um, at Howard Center was robbed at gunpoint. And this leads us to ask the question, how can we overcome the evil that seems to be permeating our communities, our country? And this is by no means, I think, an easy question to answer, especially in our country with the after-effects of our apartheid history, our apartheid past still having an effect on us today. But when we look at Scripture, and in particular when we look at Romans chapter 12, we are presented with means that we can address evil in our communities. And so tonight we will meditate on God's Word, and as we look at Romans 12, I'll try to give us a little bit of a, a context of the book of Romans, because we'll be spending the next few weeks looking at some of those verses. And then we'll also look at how we are told that we can overcome evil with love. So the following verse that we're going to look at describes exactly what God's people are to do when we find ourselves surrounded by a growing evil. So let's read Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. It says, 
Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And here's our key verse. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the book of Romans is a letter that was written by Paul about 57 years after Jesus died. And it is understood that Paul wrote this letter while he was in Corinth, and he sent the letter to Rome with a lady named Phoebe. And we read about Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. This is what they say about Phoebe. This is what Paul says. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Interesting that this woman Phoebe, a woman, played such an important role in getting this letter into the right hands. You see how, how, how powerfully God used women even in the early days of the church to establish and to, to, to strengthen his church. Now, letters are not written in a vacuum. You know, when I send my friend a letter, which I don't anymore, when I send a letter, there's always a reason for doing it. Isn't that right? When you send a message on your phone, there's a reason for you doing it. You don't just send it for whatever. There must always be a reason for writing one, and this is also true of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Now, when we see what was going on in Rome during that time, when Paul was moved by the Holy Spirit to write these words that we just read, I believe that we will feel the power and the relevance of these words in a whole new way. So let's consider some of the context around Paul having written this letter to the church in Rome. So what we've got up there is a timeline. <clears throat> and the timeline there indicates the five Roman emperors who were ruling over Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and approximately the first 68 years of the life of the church in Rome. 
Now, the first emperor there on your, on your far left was Augustus, and he ruled, he was the emperor in 27 BC to 14 AD. Now, we read about this emperor Augustus in the Bible in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. And this is what Luke chapter 2 verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And that, as we know, was why Mary and Joseph needed to go to Bethlehem. So Augustus was the emperor of Rome until he died in 14 AD. Followed by him is Tiberius, the emperor. We also read about Tiberius in Luke. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, which says, In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He was followed by Caligula. Now, this emperor Caligula, he was actually Julius Caesar's great-grandson. Now, six months into this emperor Caligula's reign, he got sick. He had an illness. They called it a sleeping illness or falling illness. It may have been um, something related to a, a, a brain condition that he has. And it seems that this condition, this illness that he had, turned him into a tyrant. And he was seemingly increasingly losing his mind. Some say at that time that he was literally mad. Now, this Emperor Caligula ordered an altar to be built to himself. And the Roman historian Suetonius wrote in 126 AD, he records, and I quote, he says, um, Caligula ordered all the images of the gods to be brought from Greece that he might take their heads off and put on his own head. He also instituted a temple and priests in honor of his own divinity. So he thought he was God. In his temple stood a statue of gold, the exact image of himself, which was daily dressed in garments corresponding with those he wore himself. Unquote. Caligula's excess and his indulgence knew no limits. He was actually notorious for his orgies in the palace. And he thankfully only reigned for four years. And they say during his reign it was a nightmare. And there was widespread relief when Caligula was finally assassinated by two of his own bodyguards. <clears throat> After Caligula was Claudius. Claudius is mentioned in Acts chapter 18 and verse 2, where we read about a married couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who moved to Corinth from Italy. So Aquila and Priscilla left Rome to move to Corinth, and Acts chapter 18 verse 2 actually says, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So we see his presence in Scripture there as well. And then the next emperor, the last one, was by the name of Nero. And Nero ruled between 54 to 68 AD. He came into power and he ruled for 14 years until he committed suicide when he was 32 years old. 
Now, this man, Nero, was a man of extraordinary cruelty. He actually arranged for the murder of his first wife, his aunt, and his mother. Apparently, he tried to assassinate his mother on three occasions, and he failed. This emperor, Nero, was married um, at different times to three women and two men. Again, the, the Roman historian Suetonius records, and I quote, He gelded, to geld means to castrate. He gelded the boy Sporus and endeavored to transform him into a woman. He even went so far as to marry him with all the usual formalities of a marriage settlement. When the ceremony was over, <clears throat> he had him conducted like a bride to his own house and treated him as his wife. This boy, Sporus, he carried about with him, dressed in the rich attire of an empress, kissing him from time to time as they rode together." Unquote. Now, this Suetonius who recorded these Roman events, this Roman history, was a secular historian. He wasn't a Christian. He was not a believer. But he sums up Nero's life in these words. He says, The whole life of Nero was one continued scene of lewdness, sensuality, cruelty, and folly. Unquote. Now, it was during the rule of this emperor Nero that Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Rome. So this was the government that these Christians had to live under. Now, what I mentioned to you was Nero's personal life, but he was also responsible for persecuting and targeting Christians. <clears throat> and there was something that sparked it. Around this time in, the, in, in this age, there was a huge fire that broke out in the city of Rome, and it destroyed large sections of the city. And there were rumors that this emperor Nero himself had started the fire so that he could build for himself a huge palace on the areas where the fire had destroyed property. But then Nero blamed the Christians to divert attention from himself. And again, the Roman historian and senator Tacitus in this time recorded this in AD 116. This is how Tacitus records it. He says, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport, for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs, or nailed to crosses, or set fire to, and when the day waned, burned to serve 
for the evening lights. That's what the early Christians went through. That was their government. There are some, some pictures of mosaics from that period that shows Christians being mauled by wild animals. So this is the evil that Christians in Rome had to deal with when Paul wrote these words of encouragement to them. Now coming back to the text that we read. <clears throat> the fact that God says do not be overcome by evil indicates the real possibility that this is something that can happen and that it does happen. But God says do not let this happen to you. Now when we consider the context of the believers in Rome during this time, we see how they themselves could very easily have become consumed by evil. And so too we living in the time and the context that we are living in, here in Pinelands, in Cape Town in South Africa, we could also very easily find ourselves overcome by evil. Now, what would it look like for a person to be overcome by evil? <clears throat> Here are three thoughts. I'm sure there are more. First one, wrapped up by fear. Constantly listening to and becoming consumed by fear-mongering news report after news report. Becoming gripped by fear. And then you gradually lose your peace and you gradually lose your joy. And you find yourself overcome by evil. Secondly, pressured by people. So people about you are living a completely different lifestyle because they hold to a completely different worldview. Yet you feel the pressure to conform to this way of living. And so you go along to the parties, and you do the drugs, and you live the promiscuous sex life, etc., etc., and so you find yourself overcome by evil. The third one, you become hardened by culture. I think it's true that people are more and more becoming lovers of themselves, and so there is a pride and a cynicism, a distrust that starts to grow amongst us. We see people suffering from what we call compassion fatigue. And so understanding and mercy and practicing justice is something that is rarely found. And so slowly people's hearts become hardened and find themselves finally overcome by evil. But you know what? Then Jesus comes. And he tells us and he models for us how we can overcome evil with love. Now from a worldly perspective, the notion that you can overcome evil by love sounds almost ridiculous. But let's consider Jesus' example. <clears throat> Think of the evils that were perpetrated against Jesus. Now, you may have thought of an injustice 
that you yourself may have suffered, but what about the injustice and the violence that Jesus suffered? Jesus also faced this onslaught alone because as he was going to the cross, all his friends had left him. And Jesus wasn't doing what he was doing for himself. He wasn't trying to prove a point. He was doing much more than that. Jesus was doing this for us. And even those who don't know him. And Jesus took the responsibility of the outcomes of sin of the entire world upon himself. None of us, I think, has endured the evil that Jesus did. But Jesus Christ was not overcome by evil. He, in turn, overcame evil with love. When we think back to the beginning of our story in the book of Genesis, in the Bible we see Adam and Eve living with God in the Garden of Eden. And though the Garden of Eden is perfect, evil still exists. The evil in the Garden of Eden existed in the form of a snake, as we know the story, who tricked Adam and Eve into disobeying God's commands. It was a fatal mistake, now there's an understatement, on the part of Adam and Eve, and one that would lead the world into a downward spiral of sin. And it is after this rebellion, though, that we see God make one of his first promises putting into action the grand plan that would eventually save all mankind once again. And God promises that someday, at that time he promises, someone would come, they would crush the head of the snake who brought evil into the world. But not before the snake is able to strike this person's heel. Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This person who would come is the Messiah Jesus Christ. And when the Messiah Jesus Christ finally came and he presented himself to God's chosen people, they did not want to see that he was their Savior. They did not want to hear that he was their Savior. And then being consumed by the very evil that Jesus came to destroy, God's chosen people killed their only Savior and the Son of God himself. But as we know, the Messiah knew about this rejection that he would face. And Jesus also knew that by rising from the tomb, he gained the ultimate power over death and evil, and gave his followers, that's us, power over death and evil as well, thereby crushing the head of the snake. Now, this is the example that we see in Jesus. Jesus was motivated by love, and he commands us to love in the same way. Now, in the text we see that we are to be that we are to overcome evil through love verses 9 and 10 says love must be genuine hate what is evil 
Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Now, when I first read that, I ask myself, what does it mean to really love? To be genuine in the way that I love. Real love lays down its life and it pays attention to the needs of others rather than the needs of self. And this kind of love is honest and true. There cannot be anything fake about the way that we love. Now the implication of this is that in our lives we will encounter something that looks like love, but it's not love. It's not real. It's not genuine. And then the next question that comes to mind after this is, what does real love then look like? Now the culture that we find ourselves in now, currently, tells us that real love is made up of two things. The culture out there tells us that love is made up of acceptance and secondly, affirmation. The culture tells us that if you really love me, then you must accept me as I am. And then you must affirm me as I am. Don't try to change me, because if you're going to try to change me, then that means that you don't really love me. Now, this understanding of love is widespread and it's growing. Now, if we think about it, if everybody was perfect, then this notion would be fine. Then we can love, and that love would look like acceptance and affirmation. But the truth of the matter is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So nobody is perfect. In fact, the truth of the matter is that mankind is lost. Mankind is sick and condemned. And this is our reality. Now when Jesus came, Jesus didn't demonstrate the kind of love that our modern culture is pushing. Our culture says that love is acceptance and affirmation. But Jesus says that true love is acceptance and transformation. Not acceptance and affirmation. Jesus calls us as we are, but he doesn't leave us to remain in the state that we are. There is transformation that needs to happen. And that includes everybody. No one is exempt of that. Because in that process, there is a molding. There is a pruning. There is a shaping that happens. And only Jesus is able to do that and bring it about. But now, how does this translate into us being overcomers of evil? <clears throat> Our love must be genuine, and a real love differentiates between good and evil. And so what we do is, we ought to accept, we need to invite, we need to welcome, but then we move with those who come into Jesus' transformative love. We don't reject them. We don't 
push them away. We love them with a genuine love. Because our fight is not against flesh and blood. Our fight is against the principalities and the powers of the air. Because there are forces at work behind the scenes who really are our adversities and our enemies. And so what we ought to do is we ought to exercise brotherly and sisterly affection. Honor one another with a sincere and a genuine love. Earlier on we looked at the evil that the early church and believers had to face. But let's fast forward again to where we are at now. It's not 57 AD. It's 2019. This is not Rome. This is Pinelands. Yet the words of God continue to hold their relevance and their power still up to today. And so when you find yourself saying to yourself or to your friends, our freedoms are being threatened and morality as we know it is being swept away, remember, Christians have been there before. And Christians have faced worse things before. And so it is important that we remember that we can overcome evil with love. It is possible. And so in the weeks to come, we will look at how we can overcome evil with steadfastness, with generosity, with good, and with some others. Now as we close, those Roman emperors that we spoke about earlier on, they are dead. We Google history sites to read about them. We name our dogs after them. They tried to demolish and overcome Christianity. But Jesus has continued to build his church. And he has continued to overcome evil. And we can continue to be agents who bring his kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. His light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not and will not overcome it.